first area of scripture that I'd like you to turn to will be in Acts. And it's going to be in the second chapter of Acts. And the purpose of this is because this was the aftermath of what in our study today will be the completion of God's work to sacrifice himself on the cross. And we're basically celebrating now what was that interim period for some unknown, even though they were told, some battling with doubts, as we know those can arise. But this is a beautiful passage which speaks of, in essence, from Peter's perspective, the word of truth of what had been previously declared. We're going to pick it up in verse uh, 29 of Acts chapter 2. And let's assume that this is being addressed to us personally, men and brethren. Let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. Verse 31, he, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Let me emphasize that one more time. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Verse 32, This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, which is being evidenced right now in the manifestation, in the gifts that are being imparted to these who are the disciples and now causing or provoking the marveling of this work of God. For David did not ascend into, notice this, the heavens, but he says himself, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. We talked about that a couple of studies ago, that the earth is the Lord's footstool, enemies included as the padding. Therefore, in verse 36, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, when they heard this, it says they were cut to the heart and said 
to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? And then Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are far off as many as the Lord our God will call. This is actually not only a summary of where we will be, it's almost like watching a movie backwards. And what we want to be able to see in this is that God wants to move us forward, understanding the script and the process. We're here right now to be able to get footing that not only encourages us, but that we see has been anchored in the prophecies of David, who was a psalmist, a poet. He was a musician. But most assuredly, he has been declared a prophet, meaning he had the Spirit of God being able to foretell the events that would happen, and they happened with precision. So moving back into a gospel account that I find to be very encouraging in this time right now of understanding what the Lord has indeed accomplished. Let's revisit some familiar territory. I'd like you to turn to the Gospel of Luke. I want you to go to the 23rd chapter. We're going to pick it up in verse 43, which is almost kind of a... Uh, an addendum to where we left off last week. It's a good pickup zone because in one of my devotionals, we had focused on this. And so here's what 43 opens as we move towards what we are celebrating today, Resurrection Day of our Lord. Jesus said while he was on the cross, Assuredly, I say to you, today, you will be with me in paradise. That was said to one thief who from his heart's cry and from his lips was able to say, there's got to be something more than the finality of my life on this cross. Executing justice by Rome, I deserve it. Jesus, you didn't. But when you come into your kingdom, will you remember me? And that's the promise that the Lord gave him. This day you shall be with me in paradise. Well, that was the day in which literally that criminal would die on the cross. That was the day in which the other criminal would die on the cross. That was the day in which Jesus would give his life sacrificially to atone for the sins of the world and confirm it ultimately in what we celebrate today, his resurrection. Let's advance on to where we also found from last week an utterance from someone who in saying it would be inviting a 
change of jobs. In verse 47, a centurion who was overseeing the execution declares, after seeing what happened, certainly this was a righteous man. And the Gospel of Luke records that he says, this surely was the Son of God. Already this profound effect of the Lord was touching people's hearts, opening up their mouths to declare that he was the Son of God and that he was the promised Messiah and he was the answer to every problem of their time in that day. And they had problems that were no different than us. They had oppression. They had disease. They had doubts and insecurities. They had falling economies. They were not certain at all, as we much more ably can be, of their future. And I mean that because what we mentioned in Acts chapter 2, in the work of the Holy Spirit, has given the evidentiary, deep, abiding, irrefutable evidence in us that God said what he said, and he did what he said, and he lives this day. We serve a risen Savior. They walked with a Savior, with a shepherd, who promised them that in going to the cross, he would arise from the grave and everything would change. He did not withhold that from them, but somehow they were in the hold of doubt and misunderstanding, as many of us have been and some of us right now looking on could be. We're familiar with Jesus. We've heard the story of Jesus. We understand that, that God is a special name that at times we speak of in vanity, in blasphemy. We hear it from our culture. We see the signs and evidences of depravity and of corruption. And yet here we talk about Jesus who in Acts chapter 2 was proclaimed one who did not see corruption, was not kept in Hades, but rather came as a liberator to those that the scriptures declare in Ephesians were contained until the time in which the promise of Messiah had come and the satisfaction of the atonement of sin was realized. Jesus is declared in the epistle of Peter, he penned it, that he was one who essentially preached a message to those held in darkness, brought forth those in captivity, freed them, and entered into heaven with them. That was an assurance. It is a reality. But moving back into our text with regard to the unfolding of the story, 
this declaration from the centurion, quite a witness, quite a witness indeed. Verse 50 says this, for Jesus had died. Behold, there was a man named Joseph, a council member, a good and just man. He had not consented to their decision indeed. What was the consent indeed? To conspire against God, to basically deceive and take Jesus to the cross. He was from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who himself was also waiting for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. I'm going to pause there. As the centurion in his utterance that would have been heard by those who were serving alongside of him, dispatched to execute prisoners of the state, that would have been for him a confession fatal, certainly a job change pending, because he's basically declaring that Caesar is not God. Jesus is God. As well, Joseph of Arimathea, a wealthy man, was wealthier in truly the most important way, his knowledge and understanding of whom Jesus was. For him, that confession, that at one time was probably hidden in his heart, but undenied in his mind, and certainly now proven in his actions, would been for him a job change. For indeed, as one an elder of Israel in the spiritual hierarchy of Judaism, he would have defied what those who ultimately had decided conspiratorially to do, which was to execute God, Jesus. His confession right now would pretty much invite a change of vocation. He's declaring himself, in essence, to be a disciple. He's handling out of respect and honor and tribute the body of God in Jesus, who now is to be tended. The other thing that I find in this, because remember, this is all, this is all the, the prelude of what this day represents. All of the details that went into this, and not once had Jesus shown concern about what would happen to his body. He knew that his body would be given as a ransom for many, sacrificed horrifically on the cross in brutality, but there was never a mention of, oh, by the way, would you make sure that my burial plan is in place? And the reason that that's important is because it establishes the fact that he knew the grave didn't matter. It was only a pause. It was a comma ultimately in the statement that he made, I will rise from the dead. It wasn't a period. It was not an exclamation mark. I will rise from the dead. My body will see no corruption.
And so this man, who now is giving it all, affords the body of Jesus a hewn-out stone tomb that was purposed for he and his family. And Jesus enters into a virgin tomb. He's brought into the world to a virgin womb, and he is placed inside a virgin tomb, untouched. What a perfect statement to make. That what the world system intended to do, what Satan had obviously effectually tried to do, it didn't touch him. It didn't touch him and thwart the plans of God. That God would be able to touch our hearts in a very special way. And though some would say peculiar, it's a precise way. Everything that God has chosen to do in the revelation of his son and ultimately in the liberation of men from the penalty of sin and its consequence, which is death, has been established in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So the body was given to Joseph, and it indicates that he took it down. We have evidence that others participated in that, and rightfully so. That would have been a difficult task, without a doubt. A body suspended with both rope and nail at a height that would have been above norm. And yet here's Joseph leading the way to take care of the body of the Son of God. And it says that in this way, that they might honor the preparation day for the Sabbath as it drew near, it says there were women who had come with him from Galilee, and they followed and they observed the tomb and saw where his body was laid. And then they returned and it says prepared spices and fragrant oils and they rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. And this is that pause, this interlude right now of what God is doing in this scenario. As there's time right now of deep contemplation and no doubt sincere sorrow for seeing that their Lord and Savior, one whom they walked with and ministered to, was now a body that was limp and breathless without a heartbeat. One of the things that we need to see in this is that sorrow and disappointment is very authentic, even in what one could say was the best of anything they could have experienced, which was literally walking and talking and laughing with Jesus, hearing truth flow as no scholar has ever been able to present truth. We only capture in the word of God the sufficiency that enables our faith to grow. But the Apostle John, who penned his gospel and epistles, would say that all of the things that Jesus did and said could not be contained in any amount of the volumes within libraries 
this is amazing that we in this get everything that we need, but so much more could not even be contained in the archives of journaling the things of God that he did. That's extraordinary. That is amazing. So in this pause, in this time in which there's a refrain, there's things that are emotionally right now challenging those whom had followed him intimately and those who in the multitude have had observed as well. There's right now an intention on the eldership of the religious system at that time, fabricating truth, in other words, telling a lie, trying to cover up something that cannot be covered up. In fact, something that this day was opened up, the reality of Jesus's life. It picks it up in chapter 24. I want to move there, please. Now on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they and certain other women with them came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. First challenge, why? Why was that necessary if in fact these women who had followed him faithfully, serving him indeed lovingly, and had purposed in their heart to be there on this day, freed from the law of the Sabbath, why was it necessary to bring spices and oils? Because the implication there is that that is for the dead. So it would seem that even they were having challenges right now in what at one time was unquestionable. Why? If Jesus would have commended a woman, the scriptures declare, who took her livelihood, her riches in an alabaster stone hewn box and opened it, perhaps even to the detail of breaking it and anointing the Lord's head with the oils of spikenard, the fragrance that was a holy fragrance. And Jesus said that this was being done and would be a memorial to her for his death. In other words, he had already been anointed for his death, but he did not need to be anointed for his corruption. Those spices were used to be able to disinfect and to create a aromatic fragrance that would hide the corruption of dying flesh. Peter was able to say concerning David, that body would not see corruption. The things that would have been in play within a normal body did not happen to the Lord. Corruption in death means that it begins to basically fall down. Everything within becomes in a state of corruption. 
cells that once worked in harmony with the body begin to work in a different fashion against the body, taking the tent down to the last, which God declared in the beginning would happen. From the dust you came and from the dust you shall return. And the legacy of a human life is found literally in the skeletal remains. God says that I will leave. It marks a work that I did in profound detail and in excellence. That remains. But all the other under corruption will be consumed and dust will be the evidence of my word. That wasn't the threat on Jesus's body. And in so doing, there's also a beautiful statement. Though the body, as we know it, will succumb ultimately to that corruption, God has said, because my son wasn't corrupted, then in your death, neither will you. Your soul and spirit will be with him, and your body will rejoin him when he comes again. And this is what we live in, in this faith. We're not to fear death because the Lord in this has conquered death. He has been the one who has terminated the termination. He suspended ultimately the consequence of sin, which is death, and it no longer has its grip on us. This comma, this refrain right now, there's a buzz of activity going on. This is recorded here. As the women come to the tomb, they find themselves surprised. And it says that when they get there, they found the stone rolled away from the tomb and they went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. I also appreciate this because it shows you a tenacity of the women who had such a passion for the Lord. They must have presumed they would be given a strength by God for that stone would have been too heavy for them in the small grouping that they were to have rolled it. Surprise, they didn't need to. It was open. What for? That they could finish the job that they had come to do? No. So that God could declare to them the job that he had done. That's the point of it. And the other is this. The excellency of the thoughts and the heart of a woman. Because they were going to publish the first message of the resurrection. Pretty cool that the Lord would allow that. He worked with strong men, men who certainly knew how to use their voices and personalities, but he chose in the historical archives of making much about the woman's ability to publicize the good news that Jesus had risen and to get it right, no embellishment. The truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. No fishing stories allowed. Just the truth. Publish it. But here's the other thing, too, that we see. 
It's a great mark. Because in this, by the way, this is the first evidence in the scripture of the resurrection. He's not there. There's a testimony that's being made. Because as they say in verse 4, there's perplexity about this, that behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. That wasn't the disciples coming from the laundromat. This was a confirmation of God that pictures in essence what the tabernacle was designed to do. It was to show a very special symbolic house of worship in which in the Ark of the Covenant, both the law, the shepherd's staff, and the manna would be the component parts of the life of Jesus, the one to come. And this Ark of the Covenant would also have over it this lid, which was called the mercy seat. And on the lid of the mercy seat are what are known as a high authority of angelic majesty, the cherubim, angels that in reverence bow over the ark with folded wings touching one another. And though this gives a connection for in their state, they would be unapproachable, unable to be appreciated. They come as he came robed in humanity. They come in a manner in which they can connect spiritually with these women, validating that what was pictured all the way back then is pictured presently to calm them and encourage them. It says that they were afraid in verse 5, bowed their faces to the earth, and they said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? As they are reacting, the angels respond. And their question is, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He was only in the place of the dead, but he is alive. And it says this, that in that question, they answer it, that he is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee. We need to be reminded, don't we, on how the Lord has spoken to us in his word, how he lived his life, how he has touched us with prophetic works by the things that we see in members of the church. God calls us to remember him. God calls us even as these angels are calling them to remembrance to do so in the elements of communion in which it was established in Acts chapter 2, verses 42, 43, that the vital church was one that met with frequency, prayed in humility, in great expectation, participated in breaking bread and having fellowship with one another, of maintaining doctrinal truth instructed by the apostles. That's in essence what all of this is about. And so these women are given not only perhaps the surprise of their life, they're giving out right now the message of life for the world to hear and to know. He's risen. And how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified 
and the third day rise again. And it says in verse 8, they remembered his words. They remembered his words. Then they returned from the tomb and told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles, and their words seemed to them like idle tales, and they did not believe them. Today there are some who, even right now, say that's an idle tale. My grandmother, I'd heard it from colleagues, contemporaries, history books. I've heard it. It's an idle tale. It's a myth. The Lord would challenge you and to say it's no myth. And in a time like today, the day that you're in, the mess perhaps that you are facing, why would you want to deny this and excuse it as a myth when your very life depends on belief? What these women have said, what my word declares, what you know to be true even though you've lived a life of denying it. This is a celebration of my resurrection and the very purpose that you could be with me today in paradise if this is your last day. Well, we see that it incited someone to move beyond doubt and fear. The record also shows in another gospel account that John was with him. But the highlight here is Peter. He arose, verse 12, and ran to the tomb, and stooping down, he saw the linen cloths lying by themselves, and he departed marveling to himself at what had happened. Marveling. Do you know how important that would have been for him who previously days ago had denied the Lord exactly as God said would happen, and it devastated him? He cried bitterly in what for him was a denial that assaulted everything that he had said concerning what he would do, even to die for the Lord. And so like a track runner, he makes it to the tomb and does so to establish beyond any doubt that what those women said is what he could embrace and live for. Oh, there will be some other incidences that will challenge Peter in his faith. We can even see that in what has been as well an account of what doubt and fear and forgetfulness can cause people to do when there's overwhelming evidence that there's nothing you need to be concerned about. We find that in this next account in verse 13, now behold, two of them were traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. So it was while they conversed and reasoned that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. They're walking away from a very sacred place because they're walking away frustrated and depressed. They're walking it out. They're walking it off. 
They're kicking stones down the road and shuffling through the dust with heavy hearts. They're now trying to put their intellect together, saying, what is it that we got wrong? How is it that this could have ended up this way? What are we to do right now about how errant we were and what we believed? Essentially, that was the conversation. Notice what Jesus does. He comes alongside of them. Today, if those questions perhaps are going in your mind, and it is what you would call the cynical intellect, all of the things that you know because you have the evidence, someone has spoken to you truth, You've heard it in a song. You've been delivered from a consequence in which you know with certainty impending death was knocking at your door. And God said, not today until a decision has been made. So here he is, maybe even now on this dialogue, overlooking your shoulder walking alongside as you might be seven miles away from the place in which truth was delivered. His death and his resurrection all within that city. These guys are seven miles away from the reality of God's plan to deliver mankind. Where are you today? But isn't it neat that no matter where you are today, the Lord's willing to take a seven-mile walk to find you, to walk with you, to listen to you? Maybe the frustration is that nobody's listening. And maybe your solution is indeed to run, just to forget about it. And you're not right now understanding that God is saying, I'm following you. I'm the good shepherd. I'm leading you, though you've evaded me, though you've done what you wanted to do. I'm still leading you. I just move over and I lead you because my goal is to shepherd you in faith and to secure you in eternity. And so this text of scripture speaks of the fellowship of the Lord, even though the evidence is he didn't let them know he was with them. That's important because some people hinge their faith on, unless God lets me know through a miracle or is in my face with his face, I'm not going to believe. But here he is listening and walking and talking with them. And they did not know it, but it doesn't change the fact he was with them. Doesn't change the fact that even though the Lord may not be in your face, he's talking to your heart and he wants to have access to your mind and he wants to change the direction that you've chosen to go. Will you turn around? Will you find yourself on the ground in humility, exercising a piety that really is represented in the all surrender, Lord? Absolute surrender, all surrender to you, Lord. I give my life to you. 
He says to them, what kind of conversation is that you have with one another as you walk? And notice this are sad. What kind of conversation are you having with yourself? As you walk, as you are sad, you may have every reason to be sad, but you have no reason to deny God. He's the one that was anointed with joy above his brethren, among his fellow men. And yet we see a life in which he is pronounced as one who was acquainted with suffering. How could you not find yourself desiring one who is acquainted with suffering such as no man has ever experienced, and yet he has the oil of joy that has anointed him and is wanting to talk with you, talk you through your sadness. He's identified it. We have a time now in our country, around the world, it's deeply saddened. But this is a day that God would say, I want you to celebrate. And that changes everything about the emotion of sadness. Even though it may be justified, God would say a greater justification than you pouting, crying, being brokenhearted is that I justified you in my death. Meaning that because of what Jesus did do, because of your ability even to say, though maybe not as clear as you ought to, or maybe as convinced as you think it should be, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. With the heart you believe, and God says you are righteous. With the mouth you confess, and God says justified. Though you have justified the things that you've done and anchored it in the sadness that you have, before that, I justified you in the life I gave and now the life I live. You're free to choose. Is it sadness or is it time to choose celebration? And so they go into describing to him what had happened. <laughs> Sometimes that can happen. We're telling God everything that's happened. He goes, yeah, I kind of know that. I've authored your life, so I know what's happened. And I know how you're feeling. And I know what you're thinking. And I know what you're doing. But they go through all of this. And Jesus continues to walk, continues to talk, continues to listen, continues to explain, just continues on in his faithfulness to dialogue, to touch the heart. And they are giving account of that which they've heard, that which they've known, And in verse 25, this is ultimately his interjection, which for you may be what you need to hear. Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And verse 27, beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them 
in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. This is expository teaching. It is what Jesus used methodically as his tool for opening the mind and softening the heart and causing decisions to be made for him. We do that. We don't try to invent stories. And even though God has given us ability with language to bring out what ultimately is explained quite clearly, Jesus is the expositor who defines best what our life ought to look like and what he wants it to be in spite of the stock market, in spite of the loss, the heartache, disappointments. All of those words are really synonymous. They all link themselves together with what you would call an emotional despondency. And the enemy uses that to his advantage and to your disadvantage. And God wants to give you a perspective that is heavenly from his vantage, the way he sees things, the way that he sees you. But remember the scriptures, the things concerning himself. This Bible documents the things concerning himself. And with that, as you are concerned about your life, you will have an understanding that builds your faith. Even to hear this word today, willing to listen or to come back to it, God says, I can do something with that. Faith is built on hearing from the word of God, letting it wash you, coming into agreement with it and not refuting it. Some of you are refuters of the word of God. Some of you want someone different to say the word of God to you. You want to create something in your mind that is more believable than what God says is the way he works. And so God uses the things that confound the wise and the simple in which you have to be challenged. You may want someone that is a figurehead of fame, but God just gives you a simple person to explain a complex issue of life that he does not want you to stumble over. And that's the reality of sin. On this day, God dealt with it on the cross. And he confirmed it in his resurrection that it no longer had to put you outside of fellowship with him. And you no longer have to fear the grave because he's made a way. He's defeated sin and death. They drew near in verse 28 to the village where they were going and he indicated that he would have gone further and they constrained him saying abide with us for it is toward evening and the day is far spent. Do you realize that God desires to hear that from you? He's walked with you in this episode. He's, he's listened to you and he's willing to go on. He'll meet up with you again. But he wants to hear from you 
that you desire audience of him. Right now, this is what you need to understand. They're still somewhat oblivious as to who he is. Their eyes are going to be opened. But what if the Lord has sufficiently teased you with his presence to where you're more convinced that he's with you than you are by being alone where you're at? And all he wants to hear from you right now is, would you come into my situation? Would you stay a little bit longer? There, there are things that, that, that are impressing me about what you're saying. And I want to hear you out. I want to figure this out. This is actually precisely what's happening right now in this exchange and their invitation. He accepts. Jesus will accept your invitation to come into your situation, to fellowship and commune with you. And when that's done, your eyes will be open because this is what we see happening right now. He went in to stay with them. And in verse 30, now it came to pass as he sat at the table with them, that he took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they knew him. And he vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, Did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road, and while he opened the scriptures to us? So they rose up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem, Bravo. They responded. That's what you're seeing. This breaking of the bread speaks of the element of communion in which the suffering of Jesus was for the healing of his people. His blood was shed for the forgiveness. But what these guys needed was healing. They had been forgiven. They were disciples flailing in their faith perhaps in their mind's eyes, failures of the faith, what they needed was his body. They needed to be put in remembrance of him with his body. It wasn't forgiveness. They needed to be made whole in the breaking of bread. And we too, in these days, need to find our healing in the body of Christ don't for one minute think that this is the full-on acceptable alternative to the church. The church is purposed and designed to be together, and we will. I think we're doing a great job right now, but you know that connecting with one another, in which the spiritual gifts have been given by God to each member, we are meant to be sharpening one another. We're meant to be laying hands on one another instead of using what the culture is doing right now and hands against one another. Six feet, seven feet, eight face masks. We're doing what medicine says we need to do. But God in essence says, this is the one thing that you shall do. Take of my body. It is broken for you. By his stripes, the prophet Isaiah declared, we are healed. And that was sufficient right then and there. They had been forgiven. But the Lord does not want you to forget his body. His body is the church. Some of you, maybe a lot of you, need to come back to that truth. You've been hiding out. You've been taking roads. 
You've made it convenient, but you have not yet valued once again his body that has been pointed out to you by those in your family who love you. You've seen the example established by your mother and your father, by your brothers, by your sister. You're a part of a generation in which you said goodbye to because other things were more important. The way that you chose to deal with stress and sadness and disappointment has led you far from the place of the body of Christ. You must make a decision that that is where I will go. You must. And right now, the media that is opening your eyes in the opening of the scriptures, make a decision. Where will you be on Sundays, on Thursdays, on morning devotions? Will you be with the body of Christ? Or will you just be trying to perfect your own body, your own body image, your own Facebook proclamation? Are you trying to be an influencer, not realizing that that's God's position? Resurrection Day is about taking your proper place, which is subordinate to the high and lifted one, Jesus Christ who reigns and rules and then who accommodates that vacancy and void in the heart of those who do not know him and have been persuaded against him. This is, this is the day that the Lord has made. We will be glad and rejoice in him, not in the stuff we get to do apart from him, but in him and then all things that we do because of him, make sense, add to our life blessings. They go back to Jerusalem seven miles and they go back with a message to the 11. Those who were with them gathered together saying, the Lord is risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And they told about the things that had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. In closing, in verse 50, and he, Jesus, led them out as far as Bethany and he lifted up his hands and he blessed them. Now it came to pass while he blessed them that he was parted from them and carried up into heaven, and they worshipped him, and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and were continually in the temple, notice this, praising and blessing God. The concluding word is Amen. May it be so. So it is.